now with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved. Here is Dr. James Houck. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity, reclaiming that which has always been in you. It is my great pleasure to be with you here today and every other Friday afternoon, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time. I'm Dr. James Hauk, and if you'd like more information about me or to leave me your comments about today's show, I invite you to visit the website. It's www.reclaimingauthenticity.com. It's www.reclaimingauthenticity, that's all one word, dot com. And if uh, you would like to chat over today's topic uh, and want to be part of the show, I invite you to call the toll-free number. It's 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And I will be taking your calls in the second half of the show today. Now, just in case you're unable to listen for the full hour, or you may have missed other shows, you can now download them by going on to the website and clicking on the archive section and select the show that you want to catch up on. And if you know you want to leave me your comments about today's show or any other shows, uh, again, you can just there's space available on the website that you can do that. And I always love to and you know always enjoy uh, reading feedback from listeners. Well, um, I start off these broadcasts uh, with, you know, the same saying each and every time, just uh, catch new listeners and uh, make sure we're all on the same page, so to speak. And so uh, just basically these broadcasts um, focus on the integration of spirituality and mental health, all within the context of our relationships. And uh, relationships is kind of a broad term that I use, but it's it's really relationships that we have with ourselves. That is what we think about ourselves, what we tell you know ourselves, you, you know the the, um, the the cognitive um, messages that go around in our minds and conversations that we have with ourselves. And it's also relationship with others. You know, it could be our family members or peers or colleagues or authority figures or whomever. And then also the relationship we have with God or the divine, the universe. Okay, so that is the integration of our spirituality and mental health, all within the context of these relationships. Because you see, it, it really doesn't matter who we are or where we were born, what country we were born into, a culture, society, whatever, or whatever uh, family we were placed. You know, our world is, is just filled with relationships. Because indeed, human beings are social beings. Um, and uh, quite frankly, we often spend our lives trying to make sense out of the world in which we live by trying to find our place in the world. And so as social beings, it's often within the context of these relationships that, unfortunately, we experience tremendous pain and suffering. And these could be anything from overt acts of betrayal and cruelty that somebody has inflicted against us or vice versa, to simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Regardless, 
many, many people bear the scars of a physical or a psychological, emotional, and or spiritual woundedness. And as I'll be talking about in this show is basically about how we tell our story, you know, uh, a place it could be coming from in us that uh, is a place of woundedness or disappointment, or as this show is going to focus on regret and despair. And depending how long we've been carrying around this brokenness, we might tell our stories from a deeper place of bitterness. And yet, It's quite ironic because just as we experience woundedness in our relationships, it's also within the context of healthy relationships that we can find our healing, our voice, our authenticity. And that often begins with us because the difficulty then is finding the courage to discover that which has always been in you. You know, those gifts, those graces, those skills. Uh, your uniqueness that you've come into the world with, or as John Dunn Scotus, he was a Scottish Franciscan who lived somewhere around early 1300s. He called it this hachetas. It's this thisness. Okay, so it could be a, a your Johnness, or it could be a Nancyness, or it could be a Jimness, or a Malcolmness, or whoever. Okay, but it's your thisness, your own uniqueness that nobody else has but you. And you come into the world with all those things already. Because I am a firm believer that we do come into this world with everything that we need for ourselves. But when we go through various experiences, we are often tempted to give away parts of ourselves, if not the whole, of that uniqueness, that thisness. We just go through life never knowing who we are then, uh, because perhaps we were, you know, made to feel as though we could just couldn't live up to another person's expectation of us. You know, the standards were just too high, or perhaps we ended up hiding our uniqueness from others in order to survive, say, physical abuse, or perhaps those aspects of ourselves you know, the good parts of ourselves have been taken away from us. And we didn't have the strength to fight for it. We didn't know what to do or how to get them back and so forth. But either way, when we become aware that we have done these things or these things have been, you know, done to us, it takes tremendous courage to reclaim who we are. Uh, But we can reclaim our voice. We can reclaim our uniqueness. We can reclaim our thisness and celebrate it instead of hiding it. Because when this occurs, we soon discover that the stories that we have been telling you know, ourselves about ourselves and the stories about our lives that we share with others, we begin to tell those stories not from a place of woundedness, But we tell our stories of transformation from a different place in us, a place of healing, a place of wholeness, a place of gratitude. And this is the whole point of reclaiming authenticity, helping people discover what has always been in them, and furthermore, helping people discover who they are. Now, to quote Art Williams, he says, I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. I am telling you that it's going to be worth it. Well, welcome to today's broadcast. As I said, it's entitled The Gift of Regret, 
three things we can recover from in life. Okay, the gift of regret. And that sounds kind of uh, odd to say there's something that's so horrible as regret. Uh, you know, it's just a weight of guilt or a weight of despair that just lays on our hearts and just feel like we carry it around and it just gets so heavy. How exactly can that be a gift? Well, keep listening. You know, there's an old saying out there that states there are three things in life in which we cannot recover from. Okay, three things in life in which we cannot recover from. One, the moment after it has been missed. Two, the word after it has been said. And three, time after it has been wasted. So three things in life in which we cannot recover from. The moment after it has been missed, the word after it has been spoken or said, and time after it has been wasted. Now, I've also heard it said that we can add two more things to this list of things that are so-called we can't recover from in life. One is a stone after it's thrown, and the next one is trust after it is lost. Okay, and I'm certain at one point or another in our lives, we have all heard people express regret over missed opportunities or broken relationships or words said in anger, only to wake up the next morning wishing that we hadn't done or said those things, you know, because perhaps we've even been guilty of these behaviors ourselves. But, you know, no matter where we are in life, we all have faced moments when we have wished we'd had more time to do things. You know, we should have done this, or we would have said that, or we could have done this. But you know, regardless of the situation, what these circumstances have in common is the devastating effects each regret has on our lives and the lives of others. In fact, unresolved regret and despair can literally overtake our lives and actually has the power to destroy us from the inside out. You know, it kind of eats away at our insides like battery acid until all we think and all we say and all we do is just dripping with bitterness and despair. I recently read an article from The Guardian and uh, the title definitely caught my eye even before I thought of this topic. And uh, it was entitled, Regret Can Seriously Damage Your Mental Health. Okay. And uh, for those of you who know me and have been listening for a while, that is right up my alley, uh, being a mental health uh, therapist and uh, a counseling educator and uh, mental health professional, pastoral professional. Uh, so I had to read on. I had to read more about just how can regret seriously damage our mental health. And the article stated that regret can be uh, likened to, you know, an all-consuming fire. It, it really can destroy our lives. We can see it all around us, whether it's the, uh, the man who cannot forgive himself for cheating on his girlfriend, and he's not had a serious relationship in like many decades. Or a woman who is just so tied up in wishing that she had a child with her ex-partner instead of breaking up with him that she cannot find happiness in her current circumstances. 
or other missed opportunities that people have, such as, well, I know I should have gone back to school when I had the chance, or I wish I had more children in my life, or if only I hadn't been driving down that road in bad weather. Regret is not too far behind. I think everybody can share a story about times when they wished something hadn't happened or they wished they hadn't said something. So how do you live with regret? How do you live with despair? You don't. According to this article, and in my own experience, is that you actually don't live with regret. You can actually die from regret. But you can recover from it. You know, it um, it seems like we only seem to be able to blame ourselves at times for what has happened. Rather, you know, seeing our behavior in just a much wider, broader context and and, you know, stepping back and understanding why we took the path we did based on the information we had at the time. It's like, you know, can we come to peace with the choices that we have made in our lives based on what we knew at the time? And, you know, under these conditions, there, as I said before, regret can become quite toxic if it's not dealt with. But regret does not only serve as a a defense, shall we say, against the risk of saying loving, that I, I just cannot risk getting hurt again, or I should have taken a chance to love that person when I had the opportunity. It can also serve a darker purpose in allowing people to hide from the deeper pain of remorse. Uh, David Morgan of the Institute of Psychoanalysis, he says that remorse involves insight into what one has done to others. Remorse involves insight into what one has done to others. That is the beginning of becoming aware of how one behaves and then wanting to do something differently. It's a real breakthrough in therapy when people can begin to experience general, genuine remorse for what they have done, because something authentic starts to happen. And I can certainly echo that. I know exactly what David Morgan is saying here. You know, it's when a person just realizes for the first, you know, perhaps time in their life that they get this glimmer of insight that they are so filled with remorse that it really opens up an opportunity for them to make amends. And let's face it, I mean, let's, let's be real here for a second. There are many things that have happened that we cannot turn back the clock, that we cannot just say, well, if it was only an hour before, then all this would not have happened. And there's some things that you just cannot recover from. Well, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that we can recover from many, many things, but it's what we do with those missed opportunities or those words spoken in anger, or even uh, the the times in which um, severe pain was either inflicted on us or inflicted on somebody else. We can do something with that to make amends. We can do something to start or continue the healing process. 
And that's true. Despite the fact that regret has the power to create despair in people, there is an upside, or as I call it, a gift to be found with regret. Namely, it's actually the beginning of becoming aware of how we want to do something differently going forward. In other words, it gives us opportunities to make things right. Now, ironically, remorse over missed opportunities or broken relationships and words that are perhaps set in anger or just very hateful uh, can be a real breakthrough for change in our personal lives. In fact, it is the moment for authenticity. Now, there's a, the German-American developmental psychologist, Eric Erickson, uh, had a unique way of understanding guilt, regret, and despair, uh, because he placed these feelings, along with other feelings, um, in a series of his stages of human psychosocial development. He developed this theory when he was alive. And uh, these stages, there are eight of them, uh, ranged from infancy all the way through to old age and eventually death. And what made these uh, or this psychosocial developmental stages unique was that during each stage, the person experiences a psychosocial crisis or a challenge, which could have a positive or negative outcome for one's personality development, okay? And uh, according to this theory, you know, a successful completion of each stage, each of these eight stages, results in a healthy personality and the acquisition of characteristic strengths, resiliency, which can be used through tough times. Now, um, I won't go through all the eight stages here, but I, I do want to mention the last stage, the eighth stage in our lives. It's a time, Erickson said, of, you know, for people who are 70 plus years old. Okay. And the crisis, as he calls it, or the challenge that must be resolved in this particular age bracket is finding integrity with one's life versus being consumed with despair. Think about it this way. Uh, let's say you're, you happen to fall in this age bracket. You're older now, and uh, you've retired from work or career. You've raised a family, and perhaps you're now enjoying grandkids. And if you're lucky, maybe even great-grandkids. You've also may have had made some mistakes in your life and regretted some of the things that you've said in anger or some decisions that you've even made in haste. But in spite of these experiences, you're able to look back over your life. And it's not that, that you don't have any of the I should have, I could have, I would haves, but rather it is the fact that you have come to terms with those missed opportunities or perhaps broken relationships, and you've made peace with the words said in anger. Because you see, integrity has to do more with acceptance of how you lived your life and being at peace with the decisions you have made. And although you've made some mistakes in your life, you've made amends and found peace within. And you know what is wonderful about all this? Because out of this integrity 
comes wisdom. Yeah, wisdom. Yeah, regret, though it's very painful, can be a gift. It can be the doorway to a better way of living and being with others. Now, again, ironically, although Erickson placed this developmental stage of integrity versus despair in the 70-plus years of one's life, I'm finding that more and more younger folks are searching for some kind of integrity in their lives because they, too, struggle with regret and despair. They, too, find themselves being overwhelmed with regret over their missed opportunities and the broken relationships that they've had, or maybe the words that they have said in anger. And this is what the younger generations are in desperate need of today, the wisdom of the elderly. You know, it's, it's not the same as just like sitting around and listening to the stories of the good old days, you know, but rather taking in the nuggets of wisdom that can be found in those stories. Because whether it's within, say, Western society or Eastern cultures, we have very effective teachers and mentors and leaders on down throughout history who are great storytellers. Not just because they just want to, you know, as the olden days would say, I'm just spinning yarns, but uh, or just to entertain people, but rather, you know, their lives have been characterized as ones who help pull out of others the very best of themselves. In fact, they help us to be healed and empowered to tell our stories differently. You know, and it's just that's what coming to terms with regret and despair can do. It turns into this wonderful wisdom, but we have to place this wisdom within a context, and stories do this better than anything else. And the reason why people who have worked through their regret and despair, the reason why they can help pull out of others the very best in themselves is because they find throughout their wisdom and their lives that they're not willing to allow others to settle for that mediocrity, that that kind of pain, that kind of misery, because they've been there. They know what it's like. They know what it feels like. They know the kind of battery acid that can lay in a person's stomach, so to speak. Because even if they're as resistant, you know, on, on our part or the part of younger adults or whoever, they're patient, knowing that everybody is on their own journey because everybody arrives at the truth sooner or later. But, you know, instead, you know, effective teachers and mentors and leaders out there uh, empower others to discover greatness in themselves and help them to discover greatness in other people. And effective teachers and mentors and leaders never, ever seek to control somebody else. Instead, they seek to release and hope that they have the courage then to embrace that freedom. Regret, despair, guilt, all has to be dealt with. And how do we come to terms with it? We come to terms with it through forgiveness, gratitude, love 
And it starts with us. We have to forgive ourselves. We have to find gratitude within ourselves. We have to be able to love ourselves. And when we do, we find that deep, deep, deep peace within ourselves. And out of that grows this wisdom of what's really important in life. And again, uh, you know, the great teachers out there, the mentors, the leaders, uh, the people who carry that kind of wisdom for us, they're able to do this because they themselves have learned how to live in forgiveness and gratitude and love on a daily basis. You know, their their lives have been founded and are founded on their discovered wisdom of saying, forgive me. I forgive you, thank you, and I love you. Integrity comes from knowing the value of restoration and reconciliation in relationships. But, you know, sometimes we find an effective teacher, a mentor, and a leader, you know, those who carry the wisdom, and we often become complacent, believing that all we need to do is just hang around them and ask for one blessing after another. But let's not kid ourselves. We have our own inner spiritual work to do in terms of, you know, how are we going to cultivate forgiveness and gratitude and love into our daily life? You know, we do have to listen to teachers, gurus, mentors, leaders, not just on what they're saying, but also listen to their method of how they're imparting that truth. Because quite often, the most effective means of teaching and passing on that wisdom come from people who are great storytellers. And they use use everything from plots, analogies, irony. You know, these storytellers have shared ancient wisdom that has ignited powerful transformation in those who have ears to hear, so to speak. And nothing touches our hearts as when a great teacher shares a story. Because storytelling is still one of the basic and yet most powerful means of imparting truth. Because we take in those stories, not necessarily through our ears, but mainly in our hearts. And it's in those moments we often feel whereby the moral of the story has reached in, grabbed us by the soul, and will never let go. Well, I would really love to hear what's on your heart about this subject. So again, if you would like to call in, that number is 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And I'll be taking your calls after the break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity, and I'm your host, Dr. James Houck. Be back with you in one minute.
Okay, welcome back. I am Dr. James Hauk, and you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Now, earlier in the show, if you were with me for the first half, I, I talked about the old saying, there are three things in life in which we cannot recover from. The moment after it has been missed, the word after it has been said or spoken, and time after it has been wasted. The moment after it has been missed, the word after it has been said, and time after it has been wasted. And I'm certain we've all heard people express regret over you know things such as missed opportunities and broken relationships and words set in set in anger, only to wake up the next morning and wishing we hadn't done or said those things ourselves. Because perhaps we've even been guilty of these behaviors, too. In fact, uh, no matter where we are in life, we all have faced moments when we wish we'd have more time to do things. You know, we, we should have done something, or we would have done something, or we could have done something. Either we didn't have enough time or just had a missed opportunity or maybe we got too busy and we had to focus on other things in our lives. And before you know it, years have gone by and, uh, well, you know, I would have done that only and I, I could have done that, but, you know, I didn't. And, you know, and a lot of people just spend the rest of their lives just spinning that regret and that despair. And despite the fact that regret has the power to create this kind of despair in people, um, there is an upside or a gift to be found with regret. You know, it's actually the beginning of becoming aware of, you know, what we want to do something different going forward. In other words, it gives us an opportunity to make things right. Because ironically, remorse and regret over missed opportunities or broken relationships or words said in anger, there can be a real breakthrough for change in our personal lives. In fact, it is, it is this moment in which we can actually find our authentic selves. See, a lot of people get that confused because they think, well, you know, I should have, I could have, I would have. That's the real me. Or if I said something in anger, that's that's the real me talking. And they, they think that's them being authentic, but it's really not. It's an excuse for not wanting to deal, perhaps, with weightier matters within themselves. Okay? But remorse isn't necessarily a bad thing. Regret isn't necessarily a bad thing. Guilt is definitely not a bad thing because those three aspects can create a, as or work together as a catalyst to open our eyes and, and stir our hearts in ways in which we want to make amends or we want to do right by somebody or we can, you know, ask for forgiveness and so forth. But a lot of times the message out there in society is don't feel that regret. Don't feel that remorse. Don't feel that despair and don't feel that guilt. And so people will numb to those feelings, alcohol or another kind of, you know, um, 
drugs or illicit drugs or whatever it is, you know, just something that people don't want to feel because they just might lack the insight at the time of like, well, what can I do? I can't go back and undo what I have done. And that's true. How then do you live with that? You live with it by transforming the opportunities that are ahead of you to create a real change, not just in yourself, but in the lives of others. And that's the moment for authenticity. But you know, when it comes to ignoring regret and living our lives in despair, let's keep in mind that by doing so, it does have a devastating effect uh, on us and the lives of others. It will show up in our relationships. Because you've heard the old saying, hurt people hurt people, and wounded people wound people. It's because, you know, hurt people act from a place of that internal woundedness that has yet to be forgiven or healed and released. And interestingly, there's still much debate over who benefits from forgiveness. Is it the one who forgives or is it the one who is being forgiven? Yeah, it's actually both. Bonnie Weil, who wrote the book Adultery, The Forgivable Sin, she writes in her book that if we don't forgive a grudge, there is a part of us that dies inside. We lose our optimism, we lose our enthusiasm, and we most definitely lose our zest for life. I'm sure we've met people like that. I'm sure there's times that we may have even acted that way ourselves. Yet how many of us have said at one point in our lives, I get hurt and you want me to forgive the offender? Because after all, I'm the one that got hurt. The offender should do something for me. And this sounds reasonable to hang on to problems such as anger and bitterness and unforgiveness. But again, let's be honest. The real issue why we don't want to forgive might just lie in the fact that perhaps we want to keep ourselves protected from further wounding. We don't want to let our guard down because we just might be hurt all over again. And this kind of thinking traps victims in their pain and and offers no plausible solution, especially if offenders don't realize that they did something wrong, or even if they do, they may not feel like making amends. The situation seems problematic, and it locks victims into a space filled with hurt. And carrying this hurt around can be a burden to to a person's social, physical, mental well-being. But forgiveness eases this, and, and not surprisingly, is linked to improved health and quality of life. Is it easy? No. It is a process. Forgiveness is very much a process. And I've sat with clients who, you know, they come to this understanding of, you know, people tell me I need to forgive. And, you know, my question back to them is, okay, if they tell you to forgive, how? 
how do they tell you to forgive? Well, they don't tell me that. They just say, I need to forgive. And it's like, okay, well, let's, let's do this at, you know, a, a scale of like 0% to 100%. Um, what's the percentage of how you feel that you've forgiven the person so far? And the person said, well, you know, quite honestly answer, well, I just feel 20%. I, I have about 20% forgiveness for what they have done to me. And that's like, okay, fair enough. You know, and I, I don't, I don't blow smoke with people and say, well, you'd have to be at a hundred percent or else, you know, some people take, you know, like I said, forgiveness is a process and some people need time to move toward that hundred percent. And so I follow up that discussion with what would it, what would it take? What do you need to hear? What needs to be said to you? And so on and so forth to move you to, let's say, 25% forgiveness or even 30% forgiveness. And a person will think about it and they'll come up with a solution. Okay? And then let them sit with that for a while and let's say the next week. And, you know, we talk more about forgiveness and like, okay, you're at 30%. That's good. It's good. You know? Don't uh, beat yourself up because you're you know, unable to forgive the person fully right now. But what would need to happen? What would you know, need to shift in your life or what would need to be said to you and so forth to, let's say, move you to 40% forgiveness or even 45%? And after a while, the person's like, well, if this would happen or if I heard this or something like that, I could, yeah, I could probably be around 40%, you know, and what it allows the person to do is to get used to the idea of what forgiveness feels like. It gives them a chance to get used to not only um, them coming to terms with what's been done to them, or perhaps even they need to, you know, um, you know, ask for forgiveness as well. But they realize that there's you know, this is going to take time. It's a process. And, and they're in control of just how much they feel like they're able to forgive at this given moment, all the while moving towards you know, that 100%. And it might take the rest of their lives to get to that 100%. We don't know. It, it depends. Everybody's different. Everybody walks this process of forgive, forgiveness in different speeds, so to speak. Well, you know, this past week, I've had some pretty interesting conversations with the kids that I counsel about forgiveness. You know, and, and so I like, I, you know, I love, love to talk about kids, you know, and then the uh, adolescents about forgiveness because they're kind of really open about it. I'm like, yeah, how do you do this? You know, um, you know, is it more than just saying you're sorry? And like, they're, they're really open to discussing these matters. And interestingly enough, um, whenever we get on the subject of forgiveness, sooner or later, this, this forgiveness conversation all comes back on, so what video games are you playing? You know, because unfortunately, many times video games are not always seen as ways to teach kids about the real lessons in life. But everything is a teachable moment for us. For instance, let's say, just choose any video game, okay? You're trying to reach an end goal or an end, you know, whether it's getting to a finish line 
or reaching a top of a mountain or trying to find a hidden treasure or whatever the goal of the game is. And most of the time, it takes several attempts to succeed. Or in other words, no one person playing the game has ever reached the goal of the game without making a few mistakes along the way and having to start over. And herein lies life's lessons about forgiveness. When we forgive, or when we ask another for forgiveness, it's like we have been given another chance to start over. To start over with ourselves, to start over with others, even to start over with God. Forgiveness allows us to re-enter society a little bit wiser and be more engaged in living in gratitude because we know how much we have been forgiven. You remember the game Tetris. You know, if you're over a certain age, I'm sure you've gone to arcades and maybe you even had the home version. But uh, Tetris was a game that uh, was kind of interesting when it came out. And um, it just like nobody had seen that before. And it had some pretty cool like Russian music in the background, which which made it kind of fun. But um, Tetris, if you recall, um, was a game that would begin um, when various shaped blocks would one at a time drop slowly from the top of the screen and you had to use the controls to quickly turn and flip the blocks around. And then you had to stack them in a way that you could avoid building up a wall. Okay. And then the key to the game was to complete a full row of blocks in order that the row would then disappear, thus making your wall smaller. Okay. And that was the kind of the goal of the game. And of course, the more successful you were in eliminating your blocks, the more difficult the game became, you know, because the blocks would then start to be dropped faster and you have to flip them around and kind of figure out where they're going to go. Okay, so with this in mind, think about your wall of unforgiveness and hurt or whatever you've constructed your wall with. It's it's a very powerful analogy because we hear people like, well, I just build up walls. I have walls around me. Nobody gets in. I don't get out because I have a wall. Well, let's talk about that wall. In fact, you know, at some point, maybe not right now, but maybe as you're listening to this, perhaps even later, um, draw that wall on a piece of paper. Make sure you draw the blocks large enough to show how they're connected, okay? Um, If you like, picture a brick house or a walled structure, okay? You have it? Okay, good. Now, look at it closely and ask yourselves these questions. How did my wall get to be so high? How many months and years Have I been building this wall of hurt and unforgiveness? How thick are the bricks? Are they your average size red bricks or are they more like cinder blocks? How are these bricks connected? Or how are they cemented? How are they held together? Now, imagine you're standing in front of your wall. You're standing in front of your bricks and you have a piece of chalk in your hand. Okay. 
at random, go ahead and write how you have been hurt on each one of the bricks. Okay, just one incident for one brick. For example, you on one brick, you might write how you were embarrassed at your wedding, or maybe you were even embarrassed at a funeral. Uh, on another brick, you might write down how you felt betrayed by one who said he or she would always stand by you. And still, on other bricks, you might write senseless acts of aggression or cruelty that you experienced, the time in which you were beaten up, the time in which you were bullied. Go ahead and write as much on your bricks as you need to. Okay. Now, once you've done with that, with a different colored piece of chalk, write down everything you have said or done to another person or persons. Okay, if you, you know, and go back to bricks and just, you know, let's say you have blue chalk, okay? You find room on one brick and you might write down how you embarrassed others at their wedding or their funeral. On another brick, you might write down how you betrayed one who said you would always stand by. Or on still, on other bricks, you might write down senseless acts of aggression or cruelty you committed. So go ahead and write as much on your bricks as you need to. And all in all, this exercise might take you an hour, a day, or maybe it will be an ongoing task for you to complete over several weeks, months, maybe even years. But when you've finished, stand back and look at your wall. Sit with this wall for some time and feel those emotions that are attached to the wounds. Don't judge them. Just feel them. Just let them come up and notice them. And then ask yourself these questions. What needs to happen for me to take down one brick, just one? What do you need to see or hear? What do you need to say or do? What's keeping you from doing so? How are the other bricks in this wall connected? What do they have in common? Is there a pattern of woundedness here? that keeps showing up again and again? What do I gain from keeping these bricks in place? What do I lose by keeping these bricks in place? So we can apply the same analogy or metaphor to our lives, especially when it comes to working through despair and pain and regret and guilt. We can apply the same analogy when it comes to forgiveness and gratitude. Because most of the time, society wants to treat these themes as separate and individual, but they're not. Because when it comes to integrating our spirituality and our mental health, forgiveness and gratitude can never be separated. And we, you know, go ahead and try. It's not going to work. But, you know, try to make this out to be a which-came-first chicken-egg scenario. But in all actuality... I've never met a person who didn't express gratitude in all that they do and say without 
also first having forgiveness in their heart. If you want to think about it this way, forgiveness and gratitude go hand in hand, just like peanut butter and jelly or peas and carrots. Because when we both have forgiveness and gratitude, it opens up the heart like nothing else in our lives and allows an authentic love of self and others to emerge freely. So how do we go about cultivating forgiveness, gratitude, and love? How do we go about working through regrets and despairs and the I could have, I should have, I would have? How do we go about working through a lifetime of missed opportunities, broken relationships, or words that have been said in anger so that someday we can find this peace within our hearts, that we can look back and have that integrity that has turned into this beautiful, beautiful wisdom? Well, it's actually easier than what we think. But we first have to begin with the most difficult people you may ever encounter. Your family. Forgiveness and gratitude must begin with our families because this is often where we've experienced some of the most pain and hurt in our lives. Psychological, emotional, physical, even spiritual pain. We have to begin with our families or, or, you know, our family of origin issues, because these are the first people who gave us a sense of how the world works. Now, family systems theorist Murray Bowen, you know, he suggested that a person cannot be fully understood in isolation. That is, apart from the greater context of one's family or one's community or culture in the world, because within these larger systems, people struggle to differentiate themselves and to be guided by their own thoughts and feelings and actions. In other words, although individuals really have this desire to, I want to think and live for myself, they often are drawn back into, let's say, a prevailing and often a codependent emotional patterns that characterize families and cultures and societies. Because still, if we're honest with ourselves, we may live in a part of the world where society's definition of differentiation is really a mixed message. You know, on one hand, differentiation is often taken to the extreme as we're told to, well, you have to look out for number one, be an individual, walk to the beat of your own drum, even at the expense of others, if necessary. And yet, on the other hand, There are times when we're also expected to go with the flow, don't make waves, fall in line with the status quo. And if these mixed messages are confusing, we're not alone. I mean, all we have to do is examine the history of systems in order to understand the violent and the oppressive patterns against people who do not conform to such wishes. And these mixed messages go back generations and generations. Regret and despair also go back generations and generations. In fact, whenever we think of ancestral healing, we might be hesitant to begin this process because we may still hold a tremendous amount of bitterness and rage and contempt against those who committed the physical, emotional, sexual abuse against us or our families. In fact, 
as we flip through our family albums or as we swipe through the digital pictures, we may discover that they're not always filled with pleasant memories. Instead, those pages may be filled with more memories of abuse and control and oppression and downright cruelty. But nevertheless, when we realize we can be the transitional generation that no longer has to carry such wounds, then our ancestors no longer have to carry them either. Because indeed, we all possess this inner strength, the resources and gifts to make this happen. Again, wounded people wound people. And intergenerational trauma attests to this. However, people who live their lives in forgiveness, gratitude, and love transform generations. And discovering the power of our soul's voice is tremendous. It's a tremendous catalyst for change. I'm Dr. James Houck, and thank you for listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Thank you for spending this hour with me. And if at any time that you needed to pop out or if you wanted to listen to another um, uh, episode or another broadcast, then just invite you to visit the website and just click on the archive section, and then you can choose the ones that you may have missed. So until next time, may everybody be safe out there. May everybody be at peace, and may the you find the wisdom that lies within you. Take care. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk, it's all there. Just wander on over to reclaimingauthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific time on BBS Radio TV.